Well, I can be, uh, this is a confession, I can be extraordinarily stingy at times. I don't mean that as a general personality trait. I mean, very, very specific times, I am unbelievably stingy. Uh, And I also don't mean this uh, as a boast in any way, because the two examples I'm going to give are very embarrassing. Uh, And I'm aware this is a problem, as the examples will make clear. So first, I am absurdly stingy when it comes to popcorn. I don't like to share. I eat, this is not an exaggeration, my wife can verify this for you, I eat popcorn about six nights a week. Okay, so uh, I love this stuff. It's one of the three things I'm capable of cooking myself. Uh, So, you know, and I've mastered it, not to brag, but I have mastered it. Uh, I have my own kernels I like to use. I do it on the stovetop. I use this, special, this olive oil I like to use for it. Uh, it's, it's my, you know, some people have morning coffee rituals. I have an evening popcorn ritual. Uh, but uh, I don't like to share. And my children also like popcorn. And so sometimes this is a problem. So when I make it, I typically wait till they go to bed or I try to be discreet about making it if they haven't gone to bed yet, uh, which it's, you probably know this, it's very difficult to make popcorn discreetly. It's, it, it pops. Uh, so uh, this past week, I was you know, doing my evening popcorn ritual and my son, Charlie, my second born, uh, heard the popping and he came in and he asked for some and I dearly, dearly love my son, Charlie. So of the 10,000 kernels in the bowl, I gave him one. And I told him he's not allowed to have any more. I, was, I, I acted like it was a very generous thing. Like, daddy loves you so much. Here's one piece of popcorn. I can be very, very stingy about very, very specific things. The other example, uh, this was, I think, about a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, my pastor from our church in Chicago, uh, I used to live in Chicago. It's originally where I'm from. My pastor came over to our house. Uh, he was admiring uh, my bookshelves, particularly my shelf uh, dedicated to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. My pastor was a very godly man, so he also loved Tolkien. Uh, and he noticed uh, my very fancy, very nice, moderately expensive uh, 50th anniversary edition of The Lord of the Rings. And he asked if he could pick it up and look at it. And uh, after a brief pause... To my shame, I said to my pastor, can you wash your hands first? (laughs) I can be sinfully, selfishly, extraordinarily stingy about sharing things that I love. But as we will see in our passage this morning, the good news is that Jesus is not like me. Jesus doesn't hold back. He doesn't feel this, this reticence, this, this, this uh, hesitation to share what he has with those he loves. When Jesus gives to his people, he gives freely and he doesn't just give enough, he gives more than enough. So today we are continuing our walk through Matthew's gospel. It's our habit here at the Parkway Church to work consecutively through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, word by word, so that the Bible is what's setting our agenda every Sunday. And one thing we've noticed, if you've been paying attention throughout Matthew, is Matthew kind of has this unique focus of among the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew tends to focus a lot on the disciples. 
He talks a lot about those who follow Jesus. He kind of unpacks the implications of Jesus' ministry for them. That's a constant uh, focus of what Matthew is doing. And mostly the disciples are these 12 guys who are, are with Jesus for most of his ministry. And our passage today has a lot to say to the disciples. Uh, it has a lot to say to the disciples then, and it also has a lot for us as Christ's disciples uh, today to understand, to believe, and to do. So today we are looking at the famous feeding of the 5,000. Uh, I say famous, and it's rightly famous. Uh, one, because if, if you've maybe never been in church, you've never really read the Bible, you've probably heard of the feeding of the 5,000. But also, it is the only miracle in the entire Bible other than the resurrection that appears in all four of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about the feeding of the 5,000. And that's the only miracle that they all talk about, except for literally the resurrection of Jesus, which is, I mean, if they don't talk about that, it would be incomplete, right? So it is a big deal. It's rightly famous. So let's start uh, looking at the beginning of our passage with how Matthew kind of sets up this famous miracle. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So our passage begins with this kind of setup with Jesus leaving the cities and he's looking for solitude. You don't go to a desolate place because uh, you want to hang out with your friends, you go there because you're looking for solitude. And we know why. It's because, uh, as it says at the beginning, when Jesus heard this, because from our passage last week, which Carl preached for us, uh, Jesus is hearing that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been killed. Someone who his ministry has kind of mirrored Jesus's in a lot of way or kind of started and then Jesus's kind of came up after it. Uh, so his cousin, John the Baptist, has been killed. And we learned from our passage last week that Herod, the king, thinks Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnate. So he thinks he's Jesus, or he thinks he's John back from the dead. So Jesus gets out of Dodge. This is just a little life lesson here, just a little, little note. Jesus, you know, be like Jesus. Uh, if a king decapitates someone and then thinks you are the decapitatee, come back to life, you should probably leave town, right? Don't, don't hang around. He, he might be out to get you. So that's what Jesus does. Be like Jesus, right? But what's really important, what's really important in this setup here is not why Jesus goes, but where he goes. He goes, Matthew says, he withdraws to a desolate place. He's in a desolate place. Now, throughout this passage, we're going to see several little hints that point us back to the Old Testament book of Exodus. So Exodus, a famous story, right, where God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Uh, and particularly the, the kind of part of that book that we're going to see uh, hints, pointers back to is the wandering in the wilderness. So part of what happened uh, after God's people left slavery in Egypt when they were on their way to the promised land uh, is they, uh, they wandered in the wilderness and God fed them with manna from heaven. And this is just the first little hint. So that word for desolate place there 
is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that describes, which Matthew would have been familiar with, it's the same word that describes where the Israelites were wandering. So it's not the same place here. It's just the word that means desert. It means wilderness. It means desolate place. Uh, so it's not the same place. The Israelites would have been much further south than, than this. Jesus is up north, uh, north, northern uh, Galilee. Um, but it's just the first little hint here that uh, there's these connections we're going to see between what Jesus is doing here in the Exodus uh, and here Jesus is in the desert, a desolate place, the wilderness, much like the Israelites were after they left Egypt. So he goes off into the desert and the crowds follow him on foot. Now notice Jesus took a boat there. So Jesus goes on a boat across the lake, goes to this kind of desolate place, the desert, and the crowds follow him on foot, which means they're all kind of stuck. They've literally wandered out to the middle of nowhere and have no means of getting back home in any kind of reasonable fashion. So in 21st century McKinney terms, right, they're halfway to Lubbock and their Tesla ran out of battery. Right? There's, there's no charging station for 100 miles. They're, they're, they're kind of stuck out there. That's going to that's gonna set up the problem the disciples are about to notice. But first... I want us to see what Jesus does as he gets out of the boat and sees the crowds. Verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I just want to pause on that verse for just a second and I want us all to see just the glories of Christ's heart. We see a, a, just a real glimpse at his heart in this passage because he's, he's in danger for his life. His cousin has just been killed. He's grieving. He's trying to be alone. And a bunch of people show up. If you ever walked through grief, you know that's, that, that can be very difficult. When a lot of people come around, sometimes it's helpful, but sometimes it's just exhausting and you just want to be alone and instead of getting angry, instead of getting frustrated or, or hopping back into the boat and just leaving the crowd in the middle of nowhere, Jesus has compassion on them. He loves them and he heals them. Which in you know, the 21st century McKinney today, we're looking back and it probably doesn't surprise you because we know, we know this whole story. We know, that, we know who Jesus is in a way the crowds who are coming to him looking for help uh, looking to hear his teaching, looking for healing. We know who he is in a way that they didn't. We know that he's the son of God who laid aside his glory, who put on flesh and came down. We know that by the end of this story, his compassion, his love will send him to a cross where he will die for his people. So we shouldn't be surprised when we read about him having compassion in a situation like this, but it is just such a sweet little reminder, church, that it is impossible for you to inconvenience Jesus with your problems. It is impossible for you to inconvenience him with your problems. I mean, short of the cross itself, if there was ever a time for Jesus to say to these big crowds of people who are following him, for him to say, guys, please not today. Just not today. I'm grieving, I'm tired, I'm on the run for my life. Please not today. If there was ever a time for him to say that, this short of the cross, this is it. He wants to be alone. And yet we see so clearly, you can't possibly inconvenience him with your problems, church. 
no matter what, you can bring them to him and he will show compassion. He will care. He won't be exhausted and frustrated. Oh, you again. He has compassion. He loves those who come to him. That's what his compassion shows us here. And as we move forward in this passage, there's one more thing we need to know from this verse. It's a reminder that whatever comes next, whatever happens now, other than this desolate place, we can't assume that Jesus is callous or uncaring. So Jesus has led them into a crisis. We're about to see that. This is a crisis scenario that Jesus is kind of knowingly led them into. But what we need to know right away from the beginning, before any of the crisis becomes obvious to us, is it can't mean he doesn't have compassion. It can't mean he doesn't care. We must never, ever assume that a crisis means Jesus' love has met its limit. In fact, that will be when we find his love is the clearest. So that's the setup. That's what we have here. Jesus is in a desolate place and this big crowd has followed him there and the disciples do the old, you know, Nazareth, we have a problem. Verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So it's dinner time. The disciples are like, okay, work day is over. We've had, we're meeting with Jesus. Let's talk about this. Let's get the people out of here. We can't feed them. They're going to be hungry. We're all exhausted. Get the people out of here. Let's, let's shut this whole thing down. And then Jesus says something that certainly to them sounded absolutely crazy. Verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. So the, the, the disciples want to send the people away to go fend for themselves, to figure out this whole, you know, famine situation that they found themselves in. And Jesus says two things. First, he makes a statement. They don't need to leave. Okay, you know, agree to disagree. Second, he gives his disciples a command. You feed them. Actually, in Greek, it's emphatic. He says, you yourselves feed them. Now, we don't know yet how big this crowd is. We find that out at the end. So your little, and if you have an ESV Bible like me, the little line that says, Jesus feeds the 5,000, a little spoiler alert, come on. But uh, we don't know in this passage how big the crowd is. We just know it is a great crowd. That's what verse 14 says. It's a, a great crowd. So it's a lot of people. And so Jesus is making a big ask, feed this great crowd. And the disciples respond, verse 17. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. We have only five loaves and two fish. There's a big crowd. All they have is a little snack. We know from, I think it's John's gospel that this is literally like some kids sack lunch is all they have. It's, it's not even enough to feed the 12 disciples, but that's what they have. Uh, and the first thing I want to notice here is this is another little hint actually back to the Exodus narrative. So in Exodus 16, when God's people were in the wilderness and they were hungry, does that sound familiar? In the desert, hungry, okay. And God rained bread, which he called manna, from heaven 
to feed them. And, and, and he, had a, he had very specific rules. When he rained the manna, he had very specific rules about how this manna stuff works. So they're in a desert place, they're hungry every day, and God rains manna from heaven every morning in order to feed them, every morning except for the Sabbath. And the rules were basically that they were required to only collect enough bread to feed them for that day. What you need for that day, you collect. You're not allowed to store up bread. You're not allowed to save the manna for tomorrow because God's trying to teach them something. He's trying to teach them that uh, if you're collecting bread, you're not trusting God to rain manna tomorrow. It's a lack of faith you're showing. You're saying, we better save this stuff up because what if it does, God doesn't make it fall again tomorrow? No, no, no. They need to trust God every single day while they're wandering in the wilderness to provide the food they need. And when they did uh, try to store it, it went all bad and gross. It had worms and really nasty stuff in it. So God is, is teaching them to rely on him for quite literally their daily bread. And so throughout the Bible from Exodus 16, bread becomes this metaphor for your essential daily need. What you need every day, what you need most is bread. And God is the one who provides it. That's what Israelites needed to know. And here again, God's people are in the wilderness. Again, they are hungry. And again, there's bread. The problem is there is nowhere near enough of it. They've got five loaves and two fish. Again, this actually doesn't quite capture what the Greek says. They quite literally say, we have nothing but five loaves and two fish. So they start off by saying, we, you know, we, there's nothing we have here. And they're just showing the loaves and fish to show how close to nothing they actually have. They're not really offering up the loaves and fish like, oh yeah, this kid has a sack lunch. This is going to be great. We got, you know, here's five loaves and two fish, Jesus. No, they're like, we have nothing here. We got five loaves and two fish. That's how close to nothing it is. So it's like this. Uh, a few weeks ago in this room, we moved all the chairs and set up tables and had a wonderful church potluck in this room. Uh, and I, didn't, I don't know if anyone counted, but we probably had a couple hundred people in here. Uh, and I want you to imagine, this is a scary nightmare situation, that no one brought food to the potluck. <gasps> scary. There was no big, nice spread on all the tables and like 30,000 desserts out in the foyer there, right? I mean, just nothing. We all show up here, we're all hungry, and there's no food. And for some reason, someone asked me, Lee, do you have any food? And I pull out a Snickers bar out of my pocket. Right? I'm not actually saying, yeah, I got food, Snickers bar, right? Despite the advertising, it's not gonna satisfy, right? Like it's, it's not, I'm not actually saying, let's cut this up into, you know, two, 300 pieces so that everyone gets a little bit, right? I'm showing you how close to nothing I actually have. That's the disciples here. Their point with the bread and the fist is to show they have nothing to offer the crowds. They have nothing or close to nothing. And this is the point I want you to notice. The disciples can't do what Jesus commands them to do. They can't do what Jesus commands them to do. They're unable to obey because of their own inadequacy. They don't have what they need. They can't provide for these people. Jesus tells them to, he commands them to, and they can't do it. So we have an even bigger problem. 
It's not just that these people are stuck in the desert. It's not just that they're hungry. It's that Jesus's solution is impossible. What he's asking from them cannot be done. Now, I, I said already that a crisis does not mean we should doubt Jesus's compassion, but you could understand at this point if the disciples are like, wait a second, Jesus. <laughs> These, we have, again, we don't know quite how many just yet, but we have a great crowd, an unbelievable amount of people. We're 12 guys. We've got some kids sack lunch and your solution is we're going to feed them? That's impossible. Jesus prescribes a remedy that doesn't exist. And then Jesus says one thing that changes everything. Verse 18. And he said, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. Jesus takes, Jesus steps in and the solution starts. The disciples can't do what Jesus commands. They don't have enough. They don't have what it takes. And Jesus says, bring it to me. And then verse 19, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. So he takes the meager supply that they have, these like a handful of loaves of bread and some fish, the almost nothing that the disciples have, and he blesses it. We don't know what he said. We don't know what prayer he prayed. We just know Jesus blessed the loaves and the fish. And then, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. There's two things I want you to see in the second half of verse 19 there. First, Jesus did not create here ex nihilo. Now that's a fancy Latin term, which means out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Ex means out of, like exit. Uh, and nihilo, nihilo is the Latin term for nothing. So ex nihilo means out of nothing. And in theological conversation, that usually that term comes up when we talk about the creation of the universe that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. It wasn't like there was some raw material that he had to work with and that was eternal. And he's like, okay, great. I'll use this stuff and I'll make the universe. No, no, no. There was nothing. And then God made literally everything. He created ex nihilo. So Jesus can create ex nihilo, but here he doesn't. This is not a miracle of creation. This is a miracle of multiplication. He uses the raw material, the, the pathetic little bread and fish the disciples had, the Snickers bar, and he multiplies it. That's important. We'll come back to that. But the second thing I want you to see here is that Jesus provides through his disciples. He provides through his disciples. It couldn't be clearer Matthew spells it out for us. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. He like goes away. Like, that's not how you write. That's just bad writing, Matthew. Like, if you ask your kid, hey, what'd you do today? And they say, well, I woke up and then I looked at the alarm clock and then I saw what time it was. 
And then I thought about what to have for breakfast. And then I got out of bed. You're just like, okay, no, no, no. Enough detail. I don't need to, when I ask what you did today, that's not what I'm looking for. But Matthew goes out of his way and spells this out for us. He gives us too much detail because he doesn't want us to miss the fact that Jesus provides for the crowds through his disciples. We'll come back to that too. But now I want you to look at what happens next. Verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Imagine the most satisfying meal you have ever had. I've shared this, I think, either in theological equipping or maybe in a sermon before. But April 15th, 2016, was the first day I ever had Raising Cane's chicken fingers. I won't say it was the most satisfying meal I've ever had, but it was a landmark occasion in my life. It is my favorite fast food place. I know, you know, Christians, you all like Chick-fil-A, right? Because it's convenient. They bless it in the kitchen so you don't have to pray before your meal. That's convenient. I get it. But Cane's is better. It's more satisfying. But April 15th, 2016, the first day I had canes, my taste buds experienced joys they had never known before. A satisfaction I had never experienced was just deluged upon me as I bit into that delicious chicken finger. I know, we're all making lunch plans now. And I dipped it in that nectar of the gods cane sauce. As I, as I discovered the wonders of satisfaction found in Cain's, it was a landmark occasion in my life. But whatever your most satisfying meal is, it is but a taste, uh, uh, it, is, <laughs> it is but a tiny little morsel in comparison to the satisfaction that Jesus offers. It is nothing compared to the meal Jesus provides because Jesus provides an ultimate satisfaction. This is something, this is something we need to set straight in the church. Christianity is not a killjoy religion. Christianity is not a killjoy religion. Christianity is all about joy. It is all about joy. Somehow we have this mindset, again, even in the church and often in the church, certainly outside the church too, but also in the church, that being a Christian, following the rules, living a godly life is somehow like life is terrible, but then you get heaven. Like that's what it's about. Like it's only a delayed gratification. You suffer for now and eventually you get to be with Jesus and that's gonna be great. And make no mistake, the fullest and most important rewards of the gospel are in eternity. They are ahead. But what you taste by, or what, what, you, what you will feast on by sight one day, you taste by faith right now in Christ. We taste the wonders, the rewards of the gospel now by faith as we wait to feast on them by sight. When I was a new Christian, my favorite book in the Bible was Ecclesiastes. I'm probably the only person who's ever said that. 
but it's true. I love the book of Ecclesiastes, and I still do. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is about all the best ways to waste your life. That's what, that's what Ecclesiastes is about, all the best ways to waste your life. So Solomon, King Solomon, most likely the author, it's not literally named, but he's, he seems to be the author of Ecclesiastes. He's conducting a, a, a series of experiments in the book of Ecclesiastes, a series of experiments about joy. That's what he's doing. He wants to find, in his words, the one thing under the sun that will satisfy him. He's seeking satisfaction under the sun. And so he literally tries out everything he can get his hands on. This is what Ecclesiastes is about. Just kind of goes through each one of these little experiments he does. So he tries out a lot of things. He's a king, remember? So he's got some considerable royal resources. So he chases after money. He chases after sex. He chases after career success. He chases after power and influence. Just one thing after another. He's chasing after what can I get my hands on that will satisfy me. In his words, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Whatever my eyes desired, I got it. And you might think, man, that's living. That sounds amazing. Literally anything I want, I just, I just get. I give it to myself. That's incredible. Who wouldn't love that? And then in the very next verse, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11, he says this. Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The message of Ecclesiastes is very simple and it's very sobering. The message of Ecclesiastes is this. Every earthly joy is inevitably fleeting and frustrating. Every earthly joy is inevitably fleeting and frustrating. It's fleeting in the sense that it won't last. It's there for a second and then it's gone. And it's frustrating because it does not satisfy the desire you find in the innermost part of your soul. It does not meet your deepest need. Nothing under the sun does. But when Jesus shows up in the desert with a big hungry crowd in front of him, he gives them something that does satisfy. What he offers is enough, and actually, it's more than enough. I mean, just, just look at this. We started with five loaves and two fish, and now at the end, there's 12 baskets of leftovers. Think about this. Why are there leftovers? What's the point? What's the point of having leftovers, Jesus? That's interesting. Well, remember the Exodus with the manna from heaven? They, they weren't supposed to have leftovers, right? They, you're not supposed to store it up because God just gives you what you need for the day. You need to trust him for tomorrow. God provided exactly what they needed. But now there's a mountain of leftovers, 12 baskets full. Why? Because this is similar to what God did for his people during the Exodus. But this is way better. It's way better. In the Exodus, God provides enough, but in Christ, He's over generous. It's abundant. It's more than enough. Jesus is, the, his blessings, his promises are better than what God offered in the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is 
better. It's bigger and greater and more glorious. And there's another contrast here, actually. So remember last week, Carl preached and, and we, saw, we saw a lot about what kind of king Herod was. Herod was a horrible king. He was a selfish king. He was the kind of king who, who feigned generosity for his own gain. So he made it look like he was doing things to help people out, but it was really just a, a self-aggrandizement. He was trying to puff himself up. He feigned generosity for his own gain, but Jesus is the truly generous king. Jesus gives abundantly. And he doesn't just give the little worldly trinkets that we need, that we think we need, the stuff that Solomon chased in Ecclesiastes, Jesus gives us something we need more than food. He gives us something that ultimately and eternally satisfies. See, that was, that was Solomon's mistake. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon was thinking he could find something under the sun, something in this world that will satisfy him when he was not made for something under the sun. He was made for the one who put the sun in the sky. And in Jesus, we meet him and we have him. Jesus, unlike Herod, doesn't offer up to half his kingdom. He offers his whole life for his people. And in doing so, he hands us the only bread, the only satisfaction that isn't fleeting and that isn't frustrating. In Jesus, we find the bread, in fact, that we need most, which is not just what God gives. It is God himself. That is our deepest need. And to the cost of his life, Jesus brought us back to God. That's what he gives us. That's the bread he offers that satisfies forever. And friends, I don't ever want to preach without making clear how if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know this satisfaction he offers and you don't know you don't have this union with God that he brings, how you can have those things. Maybe you've chased a lot of things like Solomon did and you've experienced that it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. It's not what you need. It does, you have a, a deeper innermost need that is not being met. And no amount of of worldly gain or relationships or success will ever, ever fill that need. You can't keep chasing it forever. What you need to do is confess to Jesus that you've rebelled against him and you deserve judgment. But then believe that Jesus, knowing your rebellion, knowing your love for sin, knowing you would chase everything other than him, laid down his life to bear that judgment. He laid down his life on the cross so that if you have faith in him, if you believe in him, you can know complete forgiveness and satisfaction and joy. And then you follow him. You follow him. Whatever that, whatever that might look like in your life in terms of what sins you need to die to, what false gods you've been chasing, what false satisfactions you've loved and looked after, Dying to those and living to Christ and obeying his commands, following him. Taste and see that the Lord is good and you will find, you will find that he does satisfy. 
And it's clear, I, I love this. He, he's got room. Look at verse 21. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus can feed thousands in an instant. There's no bottom to that well. There's no, oh, maybe there won't be enough. We knew this was a big crowd, but man, 5,000 is ridiculous. And that is only counting the men, which is another pointer back to Exodus. We don't have time to unpack, but there's women and children here too. There's a massive multitude and all, all were satisfied. That's what Jesus offers. Now we've, we've talked about a lot of the details in this passage. We've kind of walked through it line by line, but I just want to take a moment now and, and consider the big picture, the main thing Jesus is teaching through this passage. What is this, the famous miracle, the, the feeding of the 5,000, as it's recorded in Matthew 14, what is this all about? Well, one of the things that we've seen that's become clear as we've looked at the details is this role the disciples play. The disciples had this unique role that Matthew goes out of his way to emphasize. When, when the disciples realize this hunger crisis, Jesus says, you, you yourselves feed them. And when he multiplies what little they have, Jesus gives it to the crowds through the disciples and the disciples then they hand it out. So the disciples have a special role to play. And we've noted a number of these connections to the Exodus narrative, right? The, the manna in the wilderness. But there's some differences, right? It's not just enough that God provides. It's, it's more than enough. It's abundant. But also the mechanism by which it gets to the people is different. He does not rain it from the sky. It's not a miracle of creation. It is a miracle of multiplication. He uses his disciples to distribute it. So this is something new God is doing. It's related to what God has done in the past, but in Christ, there's something new God is doing. There were 12 tribes in the wilderness and there's 12 disciples, each with a basket of leftovers by the end. So here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving his disciples a picture of the ministry that he's called them to. He's giving them a picture of the ministry he calls them to. The, the further we get into Matthew, the more we'll see this a lot. Uh, the disciples have an unbelievable incompetence. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have what it takes. They are inadequate and incompetent. Jesus knows that and he points out to them right here in our passage today. You give them something to eat. And they're like, wait a second, what? They've got nothing, close to nothing. The disciples are incompetent. They are inadequate. They're unable to do what Jesus commands. And they need to know that and they need to hear Jesus say, bring it to me. Bring it to me. Bring it to me and watch what happens. Remember at the beginning of our passage, we saw Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion. That's an important word in Matthew's gospel. Jesus looks at the crowds and he had compassion. We've seen that word before. The last time Jesus looked at the crowds and had compassion, it was in Matthew 9, verse 36. It says, when he saw, Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers, to send out laborers into his harvest. And then the very next chapter, Matthew 10, Jesus answers his own prayer. How cool is that? Only the son of God gets to do that. He answers his own prayer and sends the disciples out to preach to the crowds. So Jesus' compassion compels him to use his disciples to bring his message, his gospel to the hungry people of the world. He's showing his disciples here though, how that works. How does the true bread, the bread from heaven, who is Christ, which John 6 unpacks for us in the same reflection on the feeding of 5,000, he reflects on how Jesus is the true bread from heaven, the bread of life. How does the bread get to the crowds? It gets to the crowds through the disciples and the disciples need to know they are not enough. They don't have what it takes. So they need to bring it to Jesus. And they need to know that Jesus will bless their insufficiency. He will multiply the almost nothing, the Snickers bar that they have. He will bless it and he will multiply it and it will satisfy the crowds. They are the mechanism for bringing the gospel to the world. And that remains true for the disciples of Jesus today. Uh, Full disclosure, uh, and I don't say this to garner any kind of sympathy, but this, this sense of inadequacy is something I feel literally every time I stand at a pulpit and preach. I feel, I, you know, I look at the work I put in, I, and I know it's a Snickers bar. Because no amount of unction, no amount of rhetoric, no amount of passion, no amount of Tolkien references can feed hungry souls the bread of life. I can't do that. I feel my inadequacy and I have been unbelievably blessed this week as I've studied this passage and just reflected on this glorious truth that, if I just, that Jesus planned for my inadequacy and if I just bring it to him, bring what little I have to him, he will bless it and he will use it. It's tremendously encouraging to me. And so for the rest of our time, church, I want to apply this reality, this message that Jesus showed his disciples in, in two ways. First, I want us to think specifically about how this uh, applies to the uh, nature and our understanding of the ministry of preaching, of preaching the word of God. And second, to inform the life of ministry that every Christian is called to. So first, preaching. Uh, and I, I hope what I'm about to say is an encouragement to the brothers that I am privileged to share this pulpit with, Jared, Tim, Carl. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful for all of you guys. And I hope this is an encouragement to you. But, but primarily, church, primarily, I, I hope to help you think about the preaching of the word. I, regardless of who stands at the pulpit, I want to help you think biblically about the nature of preaching. Because you're not a consumer, when you come to church. You're not, you're not just hearing, you're not just watching a show or getting a Jesus download. You're participating in something we are all doing together as we come before the God of the universe and we praise him and we hear from his word. You're not just passive watching. You are a participant in what happens here. And the Bible has commands. God has directives for those he appoints to herald his word and 
Church, it is your duty to ensure that those who do stand at the pulpit and herald the word of God, it is your duty to hold them accountable to what the Bible says. Yeah, the Bible says, submit to your leaders, obey your pastors. Yes, absolutely do those things. But no, there is a higher authority under which anyone who stands at a pulpit sits. And it is your duty, church, to remind them of that. So if it is indeed the case, as Jesus shows his disciples here, if it is indeed the case that the best a preacher has is almost nothing, some bread and some fish, if that is true, then it must be that pride is the deadliest sin a preacher can commit. Pride is the deadliest sin a preacher can commit. A preacher, however gifted, however knowledgeable, however charismatic, who arrogantly leans on his own self-sufficiency is trying to create an ocean in the desert with a garden hose. It will not work. And that self-sufficiency, what a preacher might lean on, it can be a lot of things. Like I said, it can be uh, charisma. It can be uh, rhetorical ability. It can be intelligence. It can be creativity. I'm really thankful, actually. Uh, I know how not creative I am, so I'm not, I'm not too tempted by that one. That, that's good. The, the most creative idea I think I've ever had uh, was a couple years ago. I was like, I can make a rival YouTube channel to Dude Perfect, and I'll call it Dad Perfect, and it'll be me with all my kids' toys, and I'll just destroy my kids with like cool trick shot. You're laughing because that's not, that's not a creative idea. That's stupid, right? That's a dumb idea. Uh, so I know, that. I know that. I know that I'm not creative, and I'm thankful that the Lord has reminded me of that with horrible ideas like that. But creativity is not what God demands from his preachers. It's not the duty of someone who heralds the word of God. In fact, it is the opposite. 2 Timothy chapter 1, guard the good deposit. Don't invent the good deposit, guard it. You already have it. 2 Timothy 2, God's firm foundation stands. You're not going to have a better foundation than that. Don't try to build something else to stand on. 2 Timothy 3, preach the word. Very simple. Preach the word. Not your ideas, not some quotes you thought of. Preach the word. This is one of the reasons we are committed to expositional preaching at the Parkway Church expositional, a fancy word, just to help you kind of remember what that means. It's related to the word expose. A preacher's job is to expose what is in the text, not to come up with ideas or anything like that, but to show this is what the Bible says, to help you see it, to expose it. That is the duty of a preacher. So what the preacher needs is not the garden hose of their own creativity or skill or whatever he can provide. The preacher's job is to break the dam and let the river of Christ's truth, the river of Christ's blessing, the river of Christ's word pour in and nourish his people. That's the preacher's job. That doesn't mean a preacher doesn't apply himself to his work. It just means that they apply themselves knowing it doesn't come down to their own ability. Their own ability isn't enough. They need to offer what they have, but ultimately, it is Christ and Christ alone who will provide for his people. And when Jesus does bless what little a preacher has, it multiplies and it satisfies. I mean, think about how impossible the goal of preaching is. If, if my task before God is Colossians 1.28 to present you mature in Christ, how in the world am I gonna do that with a Snickers bar of a sermon? That's not possible. 
But somehow, God, in his grace, uses stumbling, awkward, inadequate preachers to mold his people into the image of his son. And it's a blessing to get to be a part of that, to get to watch him do that and watch him multiply it. So application for you, church, pray for your preachers. Pray for your preachers. Help us bring our work to Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples, bring it to me. Help us do that. Help us bring it to him and pray that we would know know our own inadequacy, that pride would have no foothold and that we would break the dam and use what little we have and bring it to Christ so he can pour out his blessing and satisfy his people. That's the first thing, preaching. But preaching is far from being the only ministry that matters, not even close. In fact, the job of pastor teachers, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So ministry is not the job of a select few who stand on a stage and talk. Ministry is the job of all who belong to Christ. Ministry is the duty of all the saints, all of God's people. If you are a Christian, you are in ministry. And some of those ministries are what we would call kind of more formal, recognizable uh, things that maybe are associated with the life of our church. So volunteering with the youth, serving in children's programming, helping lead music up here, working in the sound booth, being a community group leader. There are various, various ministries that you might hold that are kind of more formal and official. But there are also many, many ministries, and probably most of the ministries you're involved in are informal, and you may not even think of them as a ministry. Things like parenting, bearing witness to your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers about Christ, discipling relationships, just getting coffee with brothers and sisters in the church and talking about spiritual things and encouraging one another, studying the Bible together, accountability, mentorship. These are the kinds of ministries, we can go on, but these are the kinds of ministries that God's people are called to engage in. That is what you signed up for when you put your faith in Christ To use uh, 2 Corinthians 5 language, you are his ambassador in the world. You're an ambassador of the king of the cosmos. And if that feels daunting or intimidating, good. I mean, how crazy would you have to be? How crazy would you have to be to serve as an ambassador for the king of the universe and be like, I've got this, no problem. I got what it takes. Of course not. That's what Jesus needed his disciples to know. They, in their own strength, cannot do what he commands. They can't do it. You don't have what it takes. You've got a hamburger bun and some fish sticks. And you're supposed to distribute the bread of life to the world. Good luck. I mean, you want to teach a depraved three-year-old to deny his desires and obey just because you say so? Yeah, have fun. You want to use your own feeble persuasion to convince your neighbor that the treasures of Christ outweigh any of the pleasures of the world? I mean, good luck. With your own, your own argument ability, good luck. You want to help mold your fellow Christians to look like the son of God? You can't do that. You don't have what it takes but you can distribute the bread of life to the world when you bring it to Jesus and let him bless it and multiply it. 
Knowing our inadequacy is just the first step because he multiplies the work of his people so that it does satisfy. And people do turn from sin and fall in love with Jesus. And children do learn to obey. And neighbors do realize that following the way of the world will not satisfy them. And Jesus is beautiful and Christ has already died to make his bride perfect one day. And he is, he is making that happen day by day in the unseen, invisible, small little ways that we so often disregard. But Christ is multiplying it. So whatever you do, wherever you are, church, you serve in ministry as Christ's ambassador. So don't neglect that duty. It is a command, but don't lean on your own wisdom or your own strength. Bring it to Jesus. Church history is full of of those who knew their weakness, but also knew Christ's infinite strength. And they made an impact for the kingdom, not because they were so awesome, but because they knew they didn't have what they needed and Jesus did. And they brought it to him. So may we be a people, church, that does that, that serves him faithfully, that makes an impact for his name by bringing it to him and letting him bless it and multiply it. Let's pray. Christ, you are full of mercy and compassion for your people. It is unbelievable that you chose 12 weak, faltering men to take your mission to the world and that today you have called the saints of the Parkway Church to engage in that work as impossible now as it was then and yet you have blessed and you have multiplied. Give us faith, God. Give us faith to see our own weakness, our own inadequacy and to lean on Christ's infinite strength. Help us to trust him for the burdens that we bear and the things we look at and say, there's no way I can do this and say, Jesus can. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.